it actually went this time. Isaiah chapter 60, beginning at verse number 1. If you are able, if you'd stand with me and honor the reading of God's word, Isaiah chapter 60. I hope everyone had a great Christmas holiday this week, enjoying time with family and friends. Some of you may be relieved to not be with family at this point. Sometimes a little family overload around the holiday. Isaiah chapter 60, that was a joke. Thank you. Isaiah chapter 60, I can just see people going home. Did you hear what he said? We shouldn't want to be around our families. That's not. Isaiah chapter 60 and verse number 1. Isaiah 60 and verse 1. Arise, shine, for thy light is come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Let's pray one more time. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you now, and we just ask that you would bless the opening of your word Lord, bless the preaching of your word tonight. I pray that you would give me clarity of thought and of word, that your words would be in my mouth and nothing of my own. Lord, pray that you would hide me behind the cross, and Lord, that um, this um, message would be an encouragement um, and a good challenge to our church. And Lord, that we would rise and shine for you in our community around us, in the world around us. Lord, we live in such a dark day. And I pray that as we enter this season, as our decorations are coming down, that we would not forget what we have just celebrated, but that, um, Lord, we would be the light that you have called us to be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. This is, to me, the saddest time of year. Not the Christmas, but what follows Christmas. I can remember as a little kid, Feeling so sad when Christmas was over. Some of my grandparents lived in Arkansas. My other set of grandparents lived in Mississippi. And I lived in Louisiana. And when Christmas was over, it was going to mean for some of my grandparents, one of my grandparents, a uh, set of grandparents, it was going to be months before I would see them again. And um, we would go home and we would take down the Christmas tree and we'd take down the decorations. And it was just such a pathetically depressing time for me. Um, Christmas has always been my favorite time of year, and I'm still just a little kid around Christmas, and um, it's just a lot of fun. And so it's always sad when uh, December 26th comes around, and all of a sudden you got the people who start ripping down their decorations as fast as they can, as though they're relieved that it's all over, and I'm just looking for an excuse to keep them up a few more days in fact, a few years ago, Laura and I found out that in some parts of Europe, they celebrate Christmas until um, January the 6th, I believe it is. Um, it may be sooner than that, but don't correct me if I'm wrong, um, because I stretch it out as long as I can, and that's when they celebrate the wise men coming, and in fact, in some uh, cultures, that's the day they exchange gifts, um, is January the 6th, so Hey, when I heard that, I told Laura, I said, we keep up the decorations till January 6th. It gives us another uh, week of extending the festivities and um, lots of fun. But as we come to this time, 
I want us to think about something as a church, as we take down the decorations, the lights. I love lights. I love Christmas lights. Um, my son Jonathan has taken up some of that love. His lights are a little more modern than mine are. You know, he's got LED strips everywhere. Uh, me, I like the old-fashioned stuff that gets really good and tangled. This was my great aunt's um, Christmas lights when she passed away. She gave me my first piano lesson when I was a little boy, and... Um, she obviously, because it was a long time ago, had a lot of, her stuff was all vintage now. And I've got these lights, and I don't really plug them in anymore because the, they make me a little nervous and the wires are exposed. And, but I still, every year at Christmas, I bring them out, and I'll drape them over the dresser, hang them over a mirror somewhere, uh, because I am extremely sentimental. Uh, but I pull this out, and I remember Ann Irene, the godly woman that she was, and... Um, I think it's fitting that at Christmas time we make such a big deal out of lights. Because this passage of scripture we just read in Isaiah 60, he says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come. This is the time of year we remember the light coming. The New Testament had ended with the prophecy that the Son of Righteousness would rise, which of course was Jesus Christ himself. And so as we enter the Gospels and we um, see the Christmas story, as it's revealed to us in Matthew and in Luke. And as we see these events unfold, we see light coming. But in, in Isaiah 60, he calls for us to be lights. You and I are to arise and shine. Why are we to shine? Because the light has risen on us. And every one of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior are called to be a light in this world. We're called to be a light in the darkness. We're called to let our light shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. We're to let our light shine as we go into 2024. <clears throat> and so I just want us, as we conclude our um, Christmas season, tonight after the service, we're going to be taking down the decorations. You'll find me in my office crying. And, um, not really, um... But we're going to be taking down the decorations. We're going to be pull it, turning off the lights. The tree will be unplugged. And so as we do these things, I pray that this will be a call to you to say, okay, we've turned off the lights. We need to shine. It's our time to shine for Jesus Christ in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And I want us to reflect for a moment tonight as we conclude rather this season Look over at Luke chapter 1. I want us to consider for a moment the characters of the Christmas story. And I don't refer to them as though they are fictitious. Um, they were literal living people. Some of them angelic beings that we're going to talk about. They were literal. They were living. These events really happened. We believe that. But God put on such a beautiful, we could, I believe, use the word production. If you've ever gone to a play and you watch the play and you see some of the actors who aren't so convincing in their roles, but then others who you just can't help but laugh because, or, or cry, or just feel what they're feeling in the play, and all of a sudden you forget that the characters are being played by actors because it is so beautifully done. And while this is a real story, I, I think about these people as, as a cast, as God has put on this enormous production, as he brings his son into the world, as the light rises in Bethlehem, 
As the day star arises and shines into our hearts, we see this beautiful story, and we often focus on Joseph, Mary, Jesus, the shepherds, um, the angels, and often that's where we stop. But I want us to back up just a little bit, rewind just a little ways. And at the beginning of Luke chapter 1, we find a man by the name of Zacharias. Zacharias is introduced here. He is introduced as a righteous man, a man who is righteous before God. He's right with God, a man who walks according to God's word. We find in Luke chapter 1 and verse 6, he's a man who walks in obedience to God and to his word. In verse number 7, um, speaking very eloquently, Dr. Luke says he is well stricken in years. Translation, he is a very old person. Um, and this is spoken of he and his wife. Here he is, he's elderly, he is in the temple, he is serving God, but we have a righteous, a godly man. And here he is prepared for the coming of Messiah. How do I know he's prepared? If you go flip, keep your finger there and flip back to the last chapter in the Old Testament. The Old Testament tells us the kind of people Jesus is going to show up and reveal himself to. Malachi chapter 4 Malachi chapter 4 and verse number 2, he says, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Now I realize this is partially a prophecy of the second coming of Christ. But according to the New Testament, this is, or to the Gospels, this is also partially fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. And we see as the son of righteousness arises in Bethlehem, as he's born in Bethlehem in the stable, there are some people that get to find out right away who Messiah is. Who are these people? These are people who fear God. And that's exactly who we find in this man, Zacharias, a man who fears God, a man who is right with God. He's walking in obedience to God. He's in the temple doing his job, offering up incense. And as he offers up incense, suddenly the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, appears to him. And what a fearful sight this must have been for an old man. A man who has lived his entire life in this period that we call the intertestamental period, the 400 years between Malachi and the New Testament, where God has been silent for 400 years. They've received no new prophecy. And imagine being Zacharias. You've lived your whole life with no new prophecy. Now they had the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, he goes on and he tells them as the Old Testament concludes, as the final prophet of the Old Testament ends his writing, he says, remember the law of Moses. In other words, you're not going to hear from another prophet for 400 years, but you have what you need. They had the word of God. They already had it. He said, remember what's already been written down for you. Well, here we have a man. This is what he's lived with. He's lived with the word of God. It's all he had, but he's walking in obedience to the word of God. And here he is in the temple, and the angel of the Lord appears, tells him he's going to have a son. He's to name his son John. He receives these instructions. He can't speak. He goes home. Sure enough, his wife shows up. What a surprise to her. She is expecting a baby. I mean, she knew it was going to happen, but she is... Um, how did uh, he say it? Well, stricken in years as well. So, wow, what a surprise. 
Um, and so here she has this baby, and then we come to the end of chapter 1, and we find Zacharias again after John the Baptist has been born. And it says that his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation. He goes on to say that, you know, God has remembered the, what he said to the prophets. He remembered his promise to Abraham. And in verse number 77, as he talks about what his son's job is going to be in relationship to the horn of salvation, which is Jesus Christ, he says his son, John the Baptist, will give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. So here we have Zacharias, a man who is right with God, and he receives the message, the Messiah is coming, your son's going to prepare the way, and the gospel is going to be preached. Secondly, we have his wife Elizabeth. These same things are said of her, that are said of her husband. In verse 6, again, they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. She is a woman that is walking in obedience to the Lord, a woman who is right with God. But there's a beautiful thing said here um, as we come to verse number 41. When Mary gets to Elizabeth's house after she's found out she's expecting, verse 41, and it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation or the greeting of Mary, the babe leapt, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth, was filled with the Holy Ghost. This is important because we recognize that she only knew Messiah because she was filled with the Holy Ghost. You realize it is the responsibility of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 15, and 16, um, in my Sunday school class, we're about to start studying Jesus' instructions here about the Holy Spirit. And it's such exciting truths to find um, that God, Jesus gave us so much um, clarity on what the Holy Spirit would be doing in our lives, in our ministries, um, through our church, through our witness, um, and Jesus said in John um, 15 and 16, some of the things he said about the Holy Spirit was that the Holy Spirit, he would reveal to us Christ. When you and I look at the word of God, how do we find Jesus? The Holy Spirit lives within us. The Holy Spirit shows us Jesus in each page of the word of God. The Holy Spirit, as I've already said, convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, helps a lost person come to the point of realizing their need for Christ. And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Ghost here. In the Old Testament, the filling of the Holy Ghost was not about salvation, it was about ministry. And the Holy Spirit would come to one person and then leave. We saw that with Saul. Uh, Saul had disobeyed the word of God, and so the Holy Spirit left him. Who did the Holy Spirit come to? Came to David came on a very young man, a young boy, a young shepherd, teenage boy, David. And the Holy Spirit came on him. And um, that's the reason why David would pray, remove not thy Holy Spirit from me. Because he had seen the Holy Spirit leave King Saul. And he didn't want the Holy Spirit to leave him. He saw what happened when the Holy Spirit left. But it was about ministry. The Holy Spirit would come on a person, speak through that person, use that person, and then go somewhere else and work through someone else. 
And so this was how the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament. But on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would come to permanently indwell believers. What does that mean? That means the moment you and I got saved, the Holy Spirit came and took up permanent residence in our hearts. But Elizabeth was living before the day of Pentecost. Mary walks in, and the moment she hears Mary's voice, she is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she recognizes instantly, this is the voice of the mother. It's not just my young cousin, Mary. This is the voice of the mother of my Savior. Because look what she says. She says in verse 42, she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this, that the mother of my Lord should come unto me. This is incredible faith. You and I know the whole story. We know that Jesus was born of a virgin. We know he lived a perfect, sinless life. We know that he died on the cross, and three days later he rose again from the dead. We know he's coming back. But here we have Elizabeth. Oh, she must have been one of those who feared God and was waiting for the Son of Righteousness to appear. Because all of a sudden, when Mary walks in the room, Elizabeth hears her voice, is filled with the Holy Spirit, and said, that's my Lord in your womb. Think about that for a moment. The excitement, now this is before he's been born, before he's been crucified, before he's risen again. She hears the voice of Mary and knows that the babe in her womb is her Lord. What amazing faith. Where did it all come from? The Holy Spirit came and revealed it to her. You realize you and I have the same Holy Spirit living within us. You and I need to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us directions so often and we don't even realize it. Sometimes we'll say, I had this idea. Anybody ever say that? And then God just does something amazing and you're just so excited because you had an idea. Well, where did your idea come from? We need to start realizing that it may be the Holy Spirit speaking to us. Now, I have had ideas, and I promise you that when I have ideas, they usually don't work out so great. Especially my good ideas, because my good ideas aren't so great. But when we learn to listen to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit speaks, and the Holy Spirit gives direction, his direction is going to be powerful. I, I've told this story a couple times lately um, around the church. I don't remember what lessons or classes I've told this story in, but um, it's one that has come to my mind a lot the last few weeks. And it was the first time I really heard the Holy Spirit speak to me about witnessing to someone. And it wasn't actually an instruction to share the whole gospel with someone. But I was in a church service. I was on the back row because we'd come in late. We were at a revival meeting, another church in our town in Louisiana. And um, the invitation came. And I just, what my heart was burdened throughout the sermon to pray for this teenage guy in front of me at the other end of the row. And I just kept watching him. He looked uncomfortable. He looked nervous. He looked like he was under conviction. And the Holy Spirit, I realized later it was the Holy Spirit, just kept prompting me to pray for him to be saved. And I just had such a burden throughout the, the sermon, and then the invitation time came. And I mean, the guy was just restless. He was sweating. He was holding onto the pew in front of him. And I felt so sorry for the guy. And I mean, my heart was beginning to pound so hard because 
There was a still small voice inside saying, go offer to go to the altar with him. And I thought, he's older than I am. He's cool. I mean, a total, total me, total nerd. I'm like, that cool dude is going to smash me into the ground. Hello, sir, would you like me to walk to the altar with you? You know, I mean, that's what I felt like. You know, and here I'm going to take some cool guy down to the altar. Is he really going to? And that's my reasoning going on. That's my idea. The Holy Spirit says, go poke him on, go tap him on the shoulder and ask him. Oh, finally, I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. I walked over and I tapped the guy on the shoulder and I just whispered to him. I said, would you like me to go forward with you? He said, no, I'm okay. I can do it. And he goes down to the altar the end of the invitation, they said, this is so-and-so. He just got saved. Everybody was excited. And I'm sitting there going, Whew, I'm glad I listened. That was the Holy Spirit. That was intense. Then after the service was over, one of the ladies came over and said, Aaron, do you have any clue who you just talked to? I said, no, ma'am. She said, he's the biggest drug dealer in town. I thought, I sure am glad I didn't know that before I talked to him. I sure am glad I didn't know that when I tapped him on the shoulder. He may be carrying. But it was the Holy Spirit. If you and I would learn to listen to the Holy Spirit, those little promptings, put the track right there. That person needs a track. Hand them a track. That person needs encouragement. Go say something encouraging to a stranger. Go share the gospel with someone. Go knock on a door. I had a friend once actually... Um, they came and visited us a couple months ago. We're here on a Wednesday night with us, a couple uh, missionaries in Canada working with children. And one day he got under such conviction he needed to drive to another city a far distance from him um, and witness to this child. He got in the car and drove several hours, got there, went in the house, witnessed to the little boy, and he got saved. Other relatives... Um, God, God began to work in that family. Why? Because he listened to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. We need to learn from this woman, Elizabeth, to listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit showed her who Christ was and she rejoiced in him. Then we find Mary, a submitted woman. In verse 38, she receives this word that she's going to, um, she's been chosen to carry the Messiah. And here we have Mary often depicted as a young, immature a foolish young woman who gets chosen for this assignment. Um, Hollywood and even Christian Hollywood likes to depict her that way. Um, even some as a rebellious young woman. But yet the scripture shows a completely different picture of her. Because she says in verse 38, and Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. She says, Okay, I'm here. I'm your servant. Whatever you want, God. You don't hear an ounce of rebellion here only reason why someone would make a movie depict her as rebellious is because the people making the movie have a rebellious heart toward God and just assume Mary would be just as rebellious as they were. But yet we have a woman that feared God, a woman who was waiting for the son of righteousness to arrive. And here she says, Lord, do with me according to thy word. God, whatever you say, I'll take the ridicule, I'll take the suspicion, I'll take the drama that's going to come when everybody finds out that I'm expecting. Be it to me according to thy word. Mary was a submitted woman. 
She was a saved woman. We see in verse 47, she says, My spirit hath rejoiced in God, my Savior. You think it's something to put your faith in Christ, the risen Lord. She put her faith in Christ, the baby in her womb. He hadn't died yet. He hadn't, been, he hadn't risen from the grave yet, yet she puts her faith in him. But we find Mary, a submitted woman. Um, the fourth person we find here is John the Baptist. He was filled with the Holy Ghost from his womb. Again, this is not about salvation. Uh, before the day of Pentecost, this is about service. And here he is. He finds out this is Messiah. He jumps in his mother's womb with excitement that the Messiah has come in. If you look over at the end of the chapter, his father rejoiced in verse 76, Thou child, meaning John the Baptist, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. We find John the Baptist, one that proclaimed Christ even from the womb. Number five, we find Joseph. In Matthew chapter 1, we find a man who is just before God. He's a just man. And here he is. He finds out his beloved, espoused wife is expecting. And he's not the father. They're not together yet. And so here he is. What do I do? He's a just man. He decides he's not going to go for a big public divorce, but he's trying to figure out how to put her away privately. And as he's trying to decide this, he falls asleep. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and tells him, this is the son of God. You go marry her. You take her to be your wife. And you name him Jesus, meaning Savior. The Bible says that he awoke and went immediately and married her. There was no time of pacing in the house to decide what to do. Am I going to obey God or not? But he walks in instant obedient to the word of God. He goes to Mary's house, takes her to be his wife, and yet the scripture says he did not know her until after Jesus was born. A friend of mine in Houston preached a sermon a couple weeks ago about Joseph and Mary. And he made this statement about Joseph. He said, there are a lot of men out there demanding intimacy without responsibility. But Joseph took on responsibility without intimacy. Imagine the weight that this man held, that God gives him an instruction and he obeys. Re disregarding the ridicule, disregarding the gossip that's going to come from the neighborhood network, yet he's going to trust God. He's going to walk in obedience to God. We find another man not so good in Luke chapter 2. His name is Caesar Augustus. He declared that all the world should be taxed. Everybody has to go back to their own city. <clears throat> History talks about Caesar Augustus, talks about his taxing. But this taxing was not about Caesar this was bigger than any emperor. This was bigger than his pride. This was bigger than his senses. This was all about one thing. The sovereign God of the universe needed Messiah to be born at a specific place at a specific time. The fullness of time had come, as Galatians says, and it was time for Jesus to get to Bethlehem. How is Jesus going to get to Bethlehem? His stepfather, Joseph, lives in Nazareth. 
His mother Mary lives in Nazareth. How is he going to get there? God is going to use the ruler of the Roman Empire to call for a tax. This tax is going to send every man back to his own city. For what purpose? To get Jesus in Bethlehem just in time for his birth so that it might be fulfilled what was said by the prophet out of Bethlehem. Out of Bethlehem. Caesar Augustus proves to us that God can use anybody to fulfill his purpose. He can use a wicked ruler. He can use a corrupt nation. But God is sovereign. And this Christmas story reminds us that God is sovereign and we can trust him. The next character we see is the angel of the Lord. We've already mentioned him a couple times. He spoke to Zacharias, telling him he was going to have John the Baptist. He spoke to Mary that she was going to have Jesus, the Savior. He would rule on the throne of his father David. Matthew chapter 1, he appears to Joseph. Luke chapter uh, 2, he appears to shepherds. Then Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13, he appears to Joseph once again, telling him, get the baby out of Israel, get him to Egypt. And so we have the angel of the Lord declaring the coming of the Savior. And if you look at all of the accounts where the angel of the Lord spoke, it's interesting that over and over and over, every time he says salvation is coming. The Savior is coming. Name him Savior. Name him Jesus. The eighth we see is the heavenly host. Luke chapter 2 and verse 13 Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Talk about praise. Can you imagine? I remember growing up hearing people talk about who the heavenly host might be. Oh, it's all the people in heaven. And I always thought that was cool. But it didn't quite make sense to me. And then I studied it out myself and realized who the heavenly host is. He says very clearly right here. Look at the beginning of verse 15. And it came to pass as the what? As the angels, plural, were gone away. Who was the heavenly host? It was the angels. But how many of the angels? I mean, you you wonder how many showed up. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us exactly how many showed up that night. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 6 says, and again, And the writer of Hebrews is showing how much better Jesus is than the angels. He says, and again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, that is Jesus, he saith, and let, how many of the angels? And let all the angels of God worship him. Who was the heavenly host that night? All the angels of God. Can you imagine the intensity of that choir special? I mean, when our choir sings, I get excited. But can you imagine to be there and it be all the angels of God? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. What a magnificent concert that night on on the hillside of Bethany, or Bethlehem rather. The the, uh, ninth character we see here is Simeon. In Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 25, we get this man introduced, a man who is at the end of his life. He's lived a long life. But he had received a promise by the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit had promised him that he would not die until he had seen the Savior. And in verse number 27, we find the Holy Spirit led him to the temple one day. And when he came in, he saw Mary and Joseph with the baby, and they were um, there for his dedication. And in verse 28, it says, Then he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Here we have the contentment of an elderly man. He was content. Why? Because he was complete. Why? He had seen Jesus. He had seen the babe. He rushed over there, took him up into his own arms. I mean, can you imagine the nerve of somebody just walking up and picking up somebody else's baby? But he knows who this baby is. This is the Savior. And he rushes over, he picks them up, and as he holds this little babe in his arms, he praises him. And he says, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm ready. I'm done. My life is complete. I can die now. I'm ready to go. Why is he ready to go? He met Jesus. If you and I had that kind of completion in Christ, the epistles tell us that we are complete in him. We need to start living that way. If we realized, and if we were complete in Christ, and we were living with this contentment, from having him, you and I wouldn't need as much stuff as we need. We wouldn't need as much activity as we need. Because we would have, realize, we have everything. I have the Savior. I have everything. But look at verse 32. I am fascinated by this. You have an old Hebrew man, and look what he recognizes. He recognizes this Messiah is not just for the Jewish people. He says he is a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. What do you think he was referencing? Perhaps the passage we read at the beginning of the message, Isaiah 60. Arise, shine for thy what? Thy light is come. Who is he going to appear to? He said the Gentiles. Gentiles would come to his light. And he says, here it goes. It's getting big now. This is not just about the Jewish people anymore. This is about the Gentiles as well. They're going to believe. They're coming to the Messiah. This is all happening. And in that moment, there's an excited little lady comes rushing in. And as this woman comes in, look what it says about her. She was this elderly woman. She served God with fastings and prayers night and day. She was a widow woman. And when, she, uh, when, when all this happened, verse 38, and she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord. She comes in the temple. She sees what's happening with Simeon. She says, it's him. It's him. It's the Messiah. And she rushes over. She gets excited. She rejoices. But she didn't keep it to herself. And this is one of the key things I think we need to see tonight as we go into 2024. And she spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. This woman only had so many days left. She only had so much energy left. And look who she poured it into. She poured it into people who were looking for redemption. You say, how would she know who was looking for redemption? Well, back in those days, if you wanted to know God, you would make a trip to the Holy Land. You would go up to Jerusalem. You would go to the temple. And here she is, she's at the temple night and day praying and fasting and serving the Lord. And I can just imagine 
She's in the temple and she's over here on her knees and she's fasting and she's praying. And all of a sudden she looks up and a man comes in with African garb. She can tell he's, she can tell he's traveled a long way. She can tell he looks troubled. She can tell he's seeking something. And she jumps to her feet and rushes over to the man and says, Sir, what are you looking for? He says, oh, we, we've heard about the God of the Hebrews. She said, I met him. Yeah, right over there. He was a little babe at the time. But let me tell you about him. He is the Savior, and he came to save you. This woman was a soul winner. And she was pouring herself into those that came. I know a little lady in um, Louisiana, Miss Molly Gulledge. When I was a teenager, when I was 13 years old, she taught me how to use the wordless book. And every time I win a kid to Christ using the wordless book, it is partly the fruit of Miss Molly Gulledge. Miss Molly's been real sick lately. But I tell you what, nothing stops her. I mean, every year we wait to see what kind of email is going to come out from what's happened to Miss Molly Gulledge. Um, a couple of years ago, she was out at Christmas time, soul winning, up and down her streets by herself, doesn't bother her. She lives in a really bad neighborhood, doesn't bother her, uh, up and down the streets witnessing to people, and she walked out in the street and got hit by a truck. And I thought, oh no, we got to get ready for Miss Molly's funeral. Oh no. Oh yeah, she's up at the hospital, and I don't know how many nurses and doctors she won to Christ while she was up there, but I assure you, she was sitting there crying and weeping, not because she was hurting, because every time I've seen her witness, she cries and she weeps and she begs them to receive Christ as their Savior. This is the kind of woman Anna was. I've been thinking today about this woman Anna, and I was reminded of my sister. Years ago, we were out at a fair uh, doing evangelism, and it was late at night and a, a very tall. My, my, wife, my sister was a short girl, very short, very white. This very tall black gentleman comes in, and he's drunk as a skunk. Now, there was no alcohol allowed at this fair, but he had it anyway, and you could smell it from a distance. And as he staggers past us, I watch my sister. Nobody else is getting up to go to witness to the man. Who's going to witness to a guy this drunk, you know? And my sister gets up, and I see her start to shake, and she picks up her Bible, and she walks over there, and literally she stands there like this, witnessing to the man, because she's right in front of him. And she just looks up, and it looked like David witnessing to Goliath. And she looked up, and you could see from a distance, you could see the tears streaming down her face, and you could see her shaking because she was nervous, and she went through the plan of salvation with the man, and the man's standing there, and he can't stand up straight, and he listens to her, and he begins to weep. And he bows his head, admits he's a sinner, and then he needs to be saved. And I kid you not, I saw it with my own eyes. He suddenly quit swaying. Just like that, he was sober. He put his faith in Christ. He came over and he sat down with all the rest of us and he began to talk to us. And I had seen that and it is just seared in my mind this vision of a soul winner that would go to somebody that looked different than she did, somebody who was way different than she was, would walk up to a man who was drunk and give the gospel to him and see the power of God sober the man up right before our eyes. You and I need to have a passion for souls and be a soul winner like this woman Anna. 
Of course, in Matthew chapter 2, we find wise men, these Gentile rulers or Gentile um, Gentile men. We're not going to go into who they are right, are right now. We're running out of time. But here they are, Gentiles. They come seeking. They come to Bethlehem, probably from some area. Uh, sorry, they come to Jerusalem, probably some area around um, ancient Babylon, pro- possibly men who were influenced by Daniel looking for this Messiah that Daniel had prophesied of when he was in Babylon. Anyway, these men show up following a star. They're men who were seeking for God. They rejoice when they get to Bethlehem. They worship the Messiah when they get to Bethlehem. And they call him the king of the Jews. Of course, then we have Herod. Herod the Great, or as my father calls him, Herod the Not-So-Great. Wicked ruler. Would kill anybody who he thought was a possible... um, threat to him, had multiple relatives killed to make sure that they did not try to take the throne from him. Of course, he hears about baby Jesus and he starts taking lives, having children murdered. Of course, a couple people we often don't think of as being characters in this Christmas story was Matthew and Luke. Matthew, a Jew, a former tax collector who gets to write part of the Christmas story, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We have Luke, a Gentile, a Gentile medical doctor who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writes what has been called the most beautiful book ever written, the book of Luke. The gospel according to Luke, declaring the story of the Messiah. But these men, their purpose in life was to present Christ to their audience. Matthew to present Christ to the Jewish people. So therefore, to the Jewish people, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he declares Jesus as king of the Jews. And he lays out the whole life of Christ, presenting him as king of the Jews. And then you have Dr. Luke, a Gentile himself, writing to the Gentile world, declaring this is Messiah. This is how the events happen. He's very organized and orderly. If you want to find the exact order of how things happen in the life of Christ, you look at Dr. Luke. That was one thing the Holy Spirit was using him for. He's being very precise. And he lays out the events in the life of Christ to present Christ to the Gentile world. Now today we have both Gospels together. We get the whole story of Christ And of course, last of all, we have Jesus, the most important. Promised Redeemer, Savior, the Son of Righteousness, the day star from on high come to visit us, come to save us from our sin. He came to die in the first place. And I say he was last, but I don't think he's really the last character of the Christmas story. Because I think that last character of the Christmas story should be you. Because Christ has come. He's shined on you. He's shined in your heart. And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to be that light for Christ. So as the decorations come down, as the lights are turned off, I challenge you in 2024 to shine brightly for Jesus Christ. And as Elizabeth Allow the Holy Spirit to control your life. As Anna, allow the Holy Spirit to give you direction and be a bold witness for Christ. Because 
as Miss Angie Barlow said that today, she said, every day is Christmas. You know what the word Christmas means? It's festival or celebration of Christ. Every single day of our life should be Christmas. We should be celebrating Christ every single day, declaring him to the world around us. But tonight, you may not be saved yourself. You may not know Jesus as your personal Savior. And I challenge you right now to admit your sin to God. Confess that Jesus died for you on the cross, was buried, and rose again three days later. Put your faith in him right now. Let's all stand together, every head bowed.